Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, everyone. As you know, on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, we start every episode with a story, and we use these stories to help us frame our chapter discussions in a meaningful way. Storytelling is a crucial part of each episode, and we've never stepped back and discussed storytelling specifically as a component of what we do. We have talked about blessings and why we bless. We have talked about all of our different themes. We have talked about Lectio Divina and Pardes and why we think sacred reading matters, but we've never looked closely at our opening stories. Well, today we're going to do that in conversation with Michaela Bly. Michaela is a talented storyteller and story editor and educator. As a two-time Moth Grand Slam champion storyteller and the former and founding director of education at The Moth, she has 12 years of experience working with individuals, organizations, and communities to shape and share the important stories of their lives. Her acclaimed workshops are invitations to reflection, spaces for discovery, and most of all, fun. Her own stories have appeared on Family Ghosts, The Moth Radio Hour, Risk, Story Collider, WGBH's Stories from the Stage, and live on sold-out storytelling stages nationwide. Michaela is also, most importantly, one of our faculty members for our upcoming What Matters class. She is one of the founding teachers for What Matters, and she is also launching a storytelling substack called The Story Letter. Welcome, Michaela. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I can't believe that we've never talked about this component of our work before. It just seemed so obvious that every episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was going to start with the story. Like, I don't even remember coming up with the idea. We were just like, yeah, obviously you start with the story. I mean, I love that. I feel like it makes everything so grounded. Can you tell us a little bit of like your thesis on storytelling? You know, what is a storyteller and why does it matter? It's so funny because answering this question is an amazing practice in having to distill things, right? Because storytelling as a word is so giant. I remember watching a video about a roller coaster designer 
who was being interviewed. And he said, what I am really, though, is a storyteller. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, everyone just thinks if there's motion, it's a story. And I think it's a really funny way that, you know, corporations were like, what's our story? And marketing teams are like, what's our story? But I come at this as a former third grade teacher. And so I also come at this as someone with a ton of social anxiety who gets nervous telling stories at parties. And so all of these other pieces of it have come into it for me. So I would say a story at its heart is something was true and then something happened and then something new was true. Oh my God, I love that. That's it. I mean, so like having dinner is a story. I was hungry, I ate dinner, I was full. Correct. So it doesn't mean that it's a story you want to write a screenplay about, right? But Hey, hey, (laughs) the case of Vanessa (laughs) eating dinner bestseller. Depending on your dinner and depending on what happens during it, absolutely. But the idea is that there's just change. If there's change of some kind, if there's a shift of some kind, there is a story. And the reason I like that is it doesn't say, oh, you had to be a hero who went on a journey and got new tools and came back changed. And it doesn't say, oh, there had to be a conflict like man versus nature or man versus man. Like all of those pieces are great and so valuable to look at, but story is so much more. We experience things in such an elemental way of just, these are the shifts and changes that have happened over our lives. And so for me, the reason why it feels important is that, you know, our lives don't happen in stories, but we sometimes do experience them in stories. And once we see that and know that, we kind of have more control over how we reflect, how we express ourselves to people, how we listen to people. Because once we think about, well, what's the changes you've, what are the changes you've gone through? What are the stories that you've been living through? We can start to listen to people and connect with them in different ways. So I just love it for that as a tool. It is so interesting to me. And I wonder if this is because of sort of popular imagination and cultural representations around AA and therapy and all of the, right? Like when movies started getting made about therapy, I'm like kind of imagining that happening more and more in the 1970s. We've come to a belief that storytelling in and of itself is therapeutic if there's a kind listener, right? That storytelling can be almost traumatic or potentially re-traumatizing if you were telling it to a bad listener in any number of ways. But if you get the opportunity to tell your full story to a good listener, that that in and of itself is a therapeutic act. Do you believe that? I do with one additional nuance, which is there's a concept called situated stories. I think it's sociolinguistics. I'm not totally sure. The idea that any story we tell, we're telling for a specific purpose to a specific set of people in a specific way that like the idea of tell your story, I think is sometimes a little tricky because Mm -hmm. not only do we not have just one story, we don't even have just one version of one story. There are Mm -hmm. so many ways that we might be expressing or communicating or narrating what's happening to us depending on who we're talking to, like you said, how trusted they are or how safe you feel or what you want them to think of you. Mm-hmm. What's going on for you at the moment? Like, what are the new perspectives you have on that experience? Right. And then also, and this is the part that I get really into 
what do I want to tell myself about this story? I am also an audience member for this story. So if mm-hmm. I want to feel really brave, if I'm having an experience right now in life currently where like stuff is hard and I need to kind of shore up my courage and I'm not really sure I can do it and I'm a little worried about it, the story I tell myself might be a story that reminds me that way back when I did a really brave thing. Like I can talk about mm-hmm. the time I finally asked him out or um, the time that I stood up for myself in the playground or whatever. And so I think that's also really important. So there can be something deeply therapeutic, but there's also so much around what you're telling and why you're telling it that can like either contribute to that or make it less helpful of a story. It's so interesting because one of the sort of gambles, one of the beliefs that what matters our our class has is that storytelling can be a sacred practice. Yes. But what would you say you are treating as sacred when you practice storytelling as a sacred practice? Are you treating the truth as sacred? Are you treating your audience as sacred? Like, I feel this to be true, and I feel like there are probably a lot of options, but I'm wondering if you can talk about what what is that sacredness in storytelling? So... I think storytelling is both a reflective and an expressive act, right? We don't just tell stories to explain who we are. We also sometimes tell stories to discover who we are. Mm -hmm. And that if that's true, then to me, the sacredness is the space between the teller and the listener. Mm -hmm. What gets created in the telling? Because by the way, that this is one of the reasons why I love live storytelling or, you know, in out loud storytelling versus written storytelling, because we're literally using our bodies, right? We're like, by using our voice, we are actually using our, our bodies to tell the story. And so we are producing it and creating it in real time in the real world. I often feel that that is the sacred piece is how does this get received? How does it get held? And what do I discover in the giving of it? Yeah. I mean, I think that this is probably a gender stereotype that I'm not proud of living into, but I am an external processor and my beautiful, beloved husband is not. And so when I am processing out loud, he thinks that I am looking for solutions or telling him a fact, right? Like he thinks I'm telling him decisions I have come to. Totally. And I'm like, no, I am figuring out what I think by trying to construct a narrative, right? Like, ah, this annoying thing happened at the post office, but that worked out. Am I having a good day or a bad day? Right? Like, I'm trying to figure out if I had a good or bad day. Well, and and you can apply that to literally this thing happened to me 10 years ago. I want to figure out what it means to me right now. And it might mean something yeah. different to me right now as I talk to you, Vanessa, than it would mean in five years when I tell it to someone else, right? Like it's going to change. Right. No, I completely agree. It's that, I think it's E.M. Forster, the quote, how can I know what I think till I see what I say? Yes. <laughs> 
I live by that. I live by that. That is my, that's like my bumper sticker. If I had a bumper sticker. I'm going to start going to that because I like Forrester so much more than Hemingway. And I do the Hemingway quote, which is I never think. And yet when I speak, I say what I have figured out in my mind without thinking. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, I I mean, true. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) totally. That's how I feel. Michaela, I want you to talk to me a little bit about your theory of listeners. Mm -hmm. I have heard you talk a little bit about this, and I love what you have to say about someone listening to a story, because you talked about the sacredness being in the space created between the speaker and the listener. So what is the role of the listener in a story? I love that question so much. I think the role of a listener at their best, the best version of a listener, is someone who is trying to hear what the storyteller wants to communicate Mm -hmm. rather than there being some objective best story or best version of a story. To me, the most successful story and the most successful listener, therefore, is when what the storyteller means to say and what the listener gets in their brain are matched. And so Mm -hmm. to me, the best listener is the one who's really trying to reach across that space the same way that the storyteller is trying to reach across that space, that they're meeting in, in a way inside of this teller's experience. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why I think storytelling is such an incredible part of the What Matters class, because we're about building community through reflection and development. We're about helping one another get to these places and everyone's in a different space. Everyone's in a different moment in their whatever journey they're on. But when we're listening with so much generosity, when we are reaching across to like really understand what someone else is saying, that creates these bonds that are, you know, no one understands you like you're what matters friends style (laughs) experience. Part of what I love about that is that there are different kinds of listening for different kinds of situations, right? Like that kind of listening is for when someone is telling you a story as an act of reaching out. But when a politician is stumping and they use an anecdote, right? Like they are not storytelling in an effort to reach out. And so your listening should be a critical kind of listening there, right? Or like there are all of these different ways that we can orient our listening and the sacred way of listening, which is actually step one of Pardes, right? What is the intended meaning of this sentence, right? It's not critical. You're not workshopping the story. You're not saying what, how you would tell the story. You are listening for what the person is trying to communicate to you. And I, you know, when I was a high school teacher, I had a mom come up to me and say, okay, so my daughter, we'll call her Chloe. My daughter, Chloe, told me that you have called her stupid in class and that you will like have other kids gang up on her. And I think you and I can both agree that you are a very nice person. And so you are not doing that to Chloe. But that is clearly how Chloe feels. And so I'm going to tell you that, like, I know you're not doing that, but something is going on that Chloe feels beat up on in your class. Yeah. And, like, that was such good listening from that mom to Chloe, right? What Chloe was trying to say was, I am in pain when I am in this class. And, like, the safe thing she felt to do was to, like, 
get the teacher involved, right? And there were ways I was playing into this dynamic. But I think about that mom all the time because like that is sacred listening to a child. Rather than getting hung up on the lie, she's like, okay, what my kid is trying to tell me is she's in pain. Yeah. That's incredible. I really appreciate what you're saying about all the different kinds of listening, because that's the other piece of this is story is so wide, right? There's so many applications of it that part of being a good listener or part of listening the way that you need to in a moment is understanding the situation, understanding the moment. What is this person what do I need in this situation? What does this person need in this situation? So if I'm listening to a politician at a debate, like, okay, how am I evaluating? What is he trying to get me to believe about him? I'm being a critical listener. Right. I'm being a good media consumer. But if I'm talking to a kid who's telling me about a dream they had or what they're worried about or whatever, then I'm listening for, okay, how do I need to help, right? What am I listening for as a way to like take some action or like be supportive or or however I need to do it? I really love that as a storytelling teacher, as a person who facilitates this. I set up containers for people to help one another with their stories that are not directorial, that are not, this is what I think your story should be, right? And even the process of workshopping always starts with, so the storyteller tells a draft of what they're working on, what they want to tell as a story, and then their listeners always first ask them, how did that feel for you? And what kind of feedback are you looking for now? Like, what do you want to do with this story? So rather than, again, going for some objective, you know, would make this story really good as if the grandma was a ghost and she came at the beginning, (laughs) which is literal. Uh, Yeah. Well, that's literal feedback I once got from a group when I was was workshopping a story and I was like, ooh, no, we got to change this. So rather rather than immediately trying to think of how would I tell this story, training ourselves to go, what does this person need is also just a way of practicing that kind of generosity so that you're all together in that person's experience trying to be understood, which is again, this very connective community building experience. Yeah. I just really love that you, you, Michaela, are helping like expand our sacred toolkit. Mm -hmm. I feel like close reading is one of the, you know, spiritual toolkits that we have and offering blessings is one of the spiritual toolkits that we have. But like, you know, close reading is not always sacred. Close, you should be close reading your own, you know, test results and, you know, close reading a recipe for allergens, right? Like that's not necessarily sacred. And we all know, bless your heart is not always a sacred expression. (laughs) And storytelling is not always sacred. And listening is not always sacred. Sometimes we should be listening with skepticism, with an ear toward disagreement and dissent, but that you're creating a space in which we can use storytelling and listening as sacred tools in order to connect with each other and in order to take care of each other and take care of ourselves. Absolutely. I'm really honored to get to be part of it in that way too, because working with people in what matters and and launching this course last year really widened and deepened my own practice, not only of how I teach storytelling, but how I see storytelling for myself, how I experience it as I'm doing my own work. So Michaela, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a meta story about last year's Pilot What Matters class that you want people to listen at home and be like, 
okay, now I think I understand what matters is a little bit better. Because this is an abstract thing, this year-long class. Yeah. I'm wondering. It's a great question. I don't feel put on the spot. So last year we had storytelling interspersed with all of the other classes. And this year it's going to be a little similar, except at the end we'll have a more focused time where we're really working on one story, each of us together, and have the option to share it in a wider group, but we won't have to. And so last year we had these interspersed ones and then I meet with people individually outside of class two if they want extra feedback or work on it and people would meet in small groups. And that meant that by the time we got to the end of class, there were some stories that students had told a few times to small groups, but the whole group had never heard it, right? And by the time we had our sort of final share, the students had been together for I mean, eight months, right? They've been together for a while and they knew each other really well. People were really connected. And we had several people share stories for our final class. And one student shared a story for their for the final class that they had not shared in the larger group ever. So they their, their small group had heard it and no one else had heard it. And when I tell you that... I was laughing so hard that my face hurt the entire time. I felt like I could see on the Zoom screen that everyone was who was muted was screaming, physically screaming with laughter. And this person, this storyteller, was telling this story that was, I mean, we were learning new things about them. We were also learning that they are legitimately one of the most hilarious people I've ever heard in my entire life. It's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard in my entire life. I could see the movie of it. I was so delighted. I was writing down lines that they were saying. And again, like I had heard a couple versions of this story, but watching them come alive to the entire group and show a whole new side of themselves to the entire group was just, yeah. it was just a joy bomb. It was like, it so was so special, really lovely. It was really lovely. And I feel like that experience, that final share was this chance for everyone to sort of show up in slightly different versions of themselves. And yeah, it was really, it was really special. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. 
It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Well, I'm just going to share one uh, thing that I learned from you in What Matters last year. And that is, so I never got to sit in on your class because we teach That's right. separately. Yeah. But one of our students quoted this to me or maybe uh, paraphrased it to me or misquoted or I'm misremembering. So please forgive me. But what I remember them relaying is that you say that if you're listening to a story, you should perform being the kind of listener that you want in your audience. Mm-hmm. And it has changed the way that I sit in audiences because I've always thought of myself as an audience member as like the person being served, which there's nowhere else in my life I act like that. On an airplane, I'm not like, yes, serve me. And I'll tell you whether or not this is good at the end. But if there's a live performer, I know when I perform, people like looking at me and like nodding and smiling really helps. Whereas I have always sat in audiences being like, huh, that is interesting. Ooh, I think that's good. Very stone faced. And you have completely changed the way that I sit in an audience because I'm like, no, I have a job here too. Yeah. This is a reciprocal situation. Yeah. Just like everything else in my life, I don't go to a restaurant and be like, no, you're here to serve me. We'll see what you do. Why Why do they treat listening differently? It's so funny. It's so funny too, because, and by the way, that idea is not about your face should look a certain way because all of us no. engage in different ways, right? Like some people, totally. I remember I taught a high school class many years ago where the faculty advisor and I worked together for years, right? So I would come into the school and we would we, and then do storytelling. And, and at the beginning of every single time we had this group, he would say to the students, there would be about 10 of them. He would say, I need you all to know the way that I listen is with my eyes closed. I'm not sleeping. You won't believe me at first, but I will give you feedback. You'll understand that I had heard you, but it is the way that I can imagine the words that you say. And he was he was telling the absolute truth, but he always told them that ahead of time because it meant that if his eyes were closed and he he would lean forward, like he was his like his brow would be furrowed, you know, he was clearly concentrating, yeah. but he had to close his eyes and you were like, "Okay, that's how you're going to perform listening for me." And so, yeah, it's so funny. I will say, I don't remember saying it in that way of like perform the listener, but I think I know where they got it, which is there's two stories in my head right now. Yeah. So when I tell a story to a very large theater, I get pretty nervous, like a big, a big crowd, you know, like over 2000 people can like kind of make me nervous. Yeah. My biggest crowd ever was like, I think 10,000. And so when it's going to be a big theater, I have this thing that I do, which is I go to the front of the stage before the show starts and I silently make friends with certain people in the audience without their knowledge. So I'm just like, oh, you came for me because we're friends. And like, oh, there you are. Hey, nice to see you again. And I just play pretend with myself. The lady in the red purse is really glad to come see me tell a story. And so I make these imaginary friends all over the theater. And so then when I tell the story, I'm telling the story to the people who I'm friends with. And I sort of have yeah. decided already that they're that. It's it's just 
creating that in my head in the absence of being able to tell people that thing. And then the other one that it also makes me think of is when I did my solo show about seven years ago, There was it was in a really small theater. You could really see the front row. And there was this lady in the front row, older woman, long, straight gray hair and a long skirt. And the whole time I was talking, she was, she looked furious and she was just slowly shaking her head. And I was like, I think she's cursing me. Like she must be cursing yeah. me. And then about <laughs> and then about halfway through, and it was really hard to concentrate. And about halfway through, her slowly shaking her head furiously became slowly nodding her head furiously. So like same, <laughs> same face, like really mad, but just slowly nodding. And I was like, I, I literally don't know what's happening with this person. And afterwards she came up to me and just goes, that was tremendous. <laughs> and that was it. And then she left. <laughs> I truly feel like the trajectory of my life changed because this woman saw my saw my show. <laughs> well, Michaela, thank you so much for coming on to talk a little bit about storytelling as a sacred practice. And I accidentally tricked you into talking about listening as a sacred practice. I think that this is just a really important conversation for us to have eight years into our podcast about <laughs> one of the key components of what we do. But I also hope that it gives people a taste for what we're up to at What Matters. A new class starts at the end of August, but we're going to keep running these. So it's just really good to stay informed. And everyone, you can find out more at NotSorryWorks.com and clicking on What Matters. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll have you back soon. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister, and we are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to Lara Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and one more time, a special thanks to Michaela Bly. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.